start by inviting our children to Children's Church and then tapping the microphone just to get everybody's attention. Let's open in a word of prayer as the children are going. Um, Lord, with this message, I, uh, I confess I need your help. Um, of course, if I'm wise, I would say I always need your help. But with this one, Lord, I, I pray that um, as we talk about adversity and prosperity, um, Lord, I pray that I would be sensitive to the reality of pain. Lord, we need your help to hear this message, to tune our hearts to trust in what you call us to trust in. And so, Lord, would you send your spirit to work in us as we hear your word, as we uh, look into what it means. Lord, I pray that you would tune our hearts to be in line with what Jesus has for us. So be with us now in this, uh, this time in your word. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're almost done with November. That went quick. Um, what we've been doing in November is we've been looking at something we're talking about, patterns of God's grace in our life. These things that he does that brings grace to us. And so the, the first question was, what is grace? What do we mean by grace? And uh, the good standard answer to that is grace is, is God's unmerited favor. God's favor resting upon us. And his favor is not like um, you may have a favorite grandchild and you have their picture on their mantle and you sit and smile at it. Um, that's not what God's favor is like. God's favor is active. He works through his grace, through his good favor towards us. He works in our lives. And so when we say God's unmerited favor, it's not just that he has warm feelings about us. It's that he's acting on those warm feelings. He's, he's working toward our good. So that's what we mean when we talk about um, God's grace. And then the question was, well, um, do we, since it's unmerited, we just receive it and then we sit there, right? Well, Peter tells us that we're supposed to grow in God's grace. So how do we grow in grace if it's unmerited? So that's what we've been looking at this month is God has given us things to grow in grace, not to earn his grace. His grace is unmerited. He has fastened his favor on you. Now what he wants you to do is grow up in that and, and grow in the picture, the image that he has for you. And what we looked at was we, we saw that the, the image that he wants us to grow into is the image of Christ. He wants Jesus to be our model. He's our big brother in the faith. He's the one that we head toward, the one that we're, we're, um, we're growing like. And so I asked the question, well, how do we do that? <laughs> and what it is is God gives us these things, these patterns in our life as Christians that we walk through them. And what they do is they tune our hearts because we can come up with a list of rules and you can have a list of rules and you can do them all and your heart could be far from the Lord. What's more important is we want to be doing things because we love the Lord. And so he, he builds these patterns into our life to tune our affections, to lead us to love what he loves and to dislike what he dislikes, to follow where he's leading us. So that's what these patterns of grace have been. And if you remember, the first week was worship. It's a weekly thing. And when we come together each week, we have a pattern we go through. Uh, we do these similar things over and over again. And it builds into us this desire to see who God really is. And then the next one was prayer and fellowship. And in prayer and fellowship, what the core of that answer was is in both instances, we're dealing with a person. God is a person. He's not an impersonal force. And so when we pray to him, it's our father who wants to hear our prayers. And then when we fellowship, when we spend time together, we're dealing with people and seeing how God has worked in their lives. And that's a pattern that God builds into us to tune our hearts to love what he loves. As we see him as a person 
active in other person's lives. And then last week was scripture and theology. And when we looked at scripture, what we saw is, I, I said a vast majority of the Bible is narrative, which means it's a story. And so as we study the scriptures, as we're reading through the scriptures and we're, we're hearing it over and over again, God wrote it down so it wouldn't be changing. As we go through it, what we're hearing is God's story over and over and over again. So we figure out where do we fit in the story. And that story was of a great king who created a kingdom that rebelled against him. So he sent his son, the great and glorious prince, to come and rescue them. And where do you fit in the story? So scripture helps us to, to understand, to process this in a pattern by looking at the story of scripture. So this week we're going to finish out um, this, this time looking at God's grace in our life with the most difficult one, adversity and prosperity. So how is it that God uses adversity and prosperity in our lives to train our hearts to love what he loves? Um, it, it'd be really easy, and I read a couple of articles and books that made it very sterile, and, and, and this is what this means. And I've, as a pastor, you can't do that. <laughs> can't just stand up and go, well, suffer and, and take it. Um, you're not going to listen to that. And, and that doesn't resonate with me because I know actual physical people, faces who are suffering, and you go, I, I can't tell them that. Uh, so I want to make sure that I don't approach this in a very sterile and, and um, just you know, matter-of-fact kind of way, but, but approach it from a human perspective. And so to introduce that subject, I think the best way to get into that topic of how do Christians deal with adversity and prosperity, um, the, the section that Fernando read for us, I think, is the right place to begin. It, it is the most tender point in Paul's ministry, I think. So to explain what's going on in what was read this morning, I have to back up a little bit. And, and lead us through the introduction to that. Because if you were paying attention, I know you've got about three questions popping through your head at this moment. Wait a minute, what was that? What's happening in 2 Corinthians is Paul is writing to the church, and he's, he's dealing with this issue that's come up in Corinth. Some people showed up, and they claim to be apostles, only better than apostles. And they have this, this great revelation for the church. And they're coming in and they're questioning the authority of the apostles. They're, they're saying that they have more. And in, 11, in chapter 11, verse 5, Paul calls them super apostles, which is a pretty literal translation. They're super apostles. And he is just so angry with them. He is absolutely opposed to them. And so what you get in the end of chapter 10 all the way through chapter 11, is Paul is saying, look, they claim that they have this, and they have this, and they have, I'm going to go through and explain to you how much better I am than they are. And I feel like an idiot doing it. But you've pushed me to it. You keep listening to these super apostles, and they're, they're driving me crazy. So they're Hebrews, great. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the H day. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was excelling in all these things. And he keeps going through chapter 11. And what you hear him do is recount some of his trials and his successes, and then go, I'm a fool for saying this. And he keeps going, and he keeps going. So that's what chapter 11 is, is Paul is comparing himself to these super apostles and saying, I am better than that. But I don't want to go there. I don't want to brag about that. That's not what makes me a better apostle. It's that I have Christ, and they don't, and that's what makes me the better apostle. So he's not talking about real apostles. He's not like having a fight with Peter here or something. They are fake apostles. They've come in, and they're trying to parade as legitimate church leaders, and they're not. And so when we get to chapter 12, 
what happens is Paul starts talking about something that is intensely personal for him. He's going through his career and he's recounting these things. And the one thing that he knows the super apostles cannot touch, there's no way they're going to be able to beat this, is the one that's most dear and most dangerous for our apostle. So at the beginning of verse 12, starting in verse 3, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. I know a man in Christ. When he says, I know a man in Christ, he has switched to the second person. He's talking about himself. He's not talking about some stranger, and we'll see why in a moment. But Paul is so sensitive to what he's about to tell us that he starts talking in the second person. It's, it's dangerous for me to talk about this, but for you, Corinthians, I'm going to bring this up. So let me distance myself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. So if he's speaking about himself, what is this event that he was caught up into heaven, this event that happened 14 years ago? Well, if the apostle had written the Corinthians around 55 to 56 AD, which is what we think, then 14 years earlier, depending on how you count it, would put it in the range of about 32 to 40, somewhere in that range, 32, 35 to 40, something like that. Um, that decade in Paul's life is something that's called the silent decade. What happens is we get Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, which happened around 34 AD, and he does a few things, and then he travels to, to uh, his home, to Tarsus, and he goes silent. For a long time, we don't hear anything about him again until Acts chapter 11, which is around 56 AD. So there's this silent period in, in Pauline history where we don't know what happened. And he puts this in that time period. So we don't know what this is. <laughs> when you look at this, I always thought it was on his first missionary journey when he got stoned. He was taken outside of Durban, stoned, and left for dead and then suddenly gets up and walks back into the city. I thought maybe that's when this happened, but the timeline doesn't work out. It was 14 years prior. So one of the things that kind of keeps us guessing is we don't know when or what happened to Paul, but he says that he was caught up into the third heaven. A um, lot of speculation over layers in heaven. Um, the intertestamental time between the writing of the Old and New Testament, there's a lot of speculation goes on in there. There's seven layers of heaven. There's, there's five layers. There's three layers. Uh, the Bible doesn't present us with a real clear definition of the layers of heaven. We just don't get that. So then what does Paul mean when he says, I was caught up into the third heaven? Um, my kind of take on it is there's heavens, right, where the clouds and the birds are. And then above that is where the stars and the moon and the sun are, and that's the heaven of heavens. And then above that is where God is, and that's the third heaven. That's kind of how I read it. Take it with a grain of salt. I might be wrong. Here's the thing. In the next verse, he's going to say, whatever it was, it was paradise. And we're familiar with the term paradise, aren't we? We just finished Luke. And in Luke, when he's on the cross with the thief next to him, he tells the thief, this day you will be with me in paradise in the third heaven, if you will. So whatever it was, it was where God is. It was where Jesus is. And that's what Paul got caught up in, into, was that, that place in reality. So then he says, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. So what he's saying is, whatever happened to me, I don't know if it was a prophetic vision or if I was physically removed from this earth and transported to heaven. I, I don't have any idea. 
He could be having a vision like Isaiah when Isaiah in chapter 6 saw the Lord high and lifted up and the trail of his gown filled the temple. Or Ezekiel, when Ezekiel is beside the Kebar channel and he sees this magnificent vision of wheels within wheels and four-faced creatures and a, a throne with something that looked like a person sitting on it. Maybe he had a vision like that. Or maybe, like Enoch, he was transported and physically was in heaven. He says, it was such a magnificent thing. Whatever it was, I can't even describe it. I don't even know if I was there physically. That's how great of a vision it was. And then he says, while he was there, he heard things that cannot be told, which a man may not utter. So while he's transported into heaven, while he's in paradise, he hears things that words can't contain. I heard things I can't utter. They won't come out of my mouth. So the NIV says it's not permitted for a man to speak. The King James says it's not lawful for a man to speak. What it really is saying is whatever it was, it can't be uttered. It's not like God is saying, don't you say anything. I gave you this vision, don't say anything. What's happening is Paul is saying, I got to this point and words won't contain what I heard. This is the vision that he had. And it was something else. It was spectacular. And it was so exceedingly great that Paul is in danger of becoming proud because of that vision. He he is constantly in fear of this vision being something that would lead him to be proud of himself. That's why we don't know anything about it. It's because Paul wouldn't talk about it. He had to be pressed by these Corinthians, by these super apostles, to bring it up and say, look, you can't top this one. This is what I'm talking about, you guys. This is what it means to be an apostle, as I had this kind of vision. And, and that's all we get. So it would be wonderful to know what it was. Paul was too afraid to tell us because he, he was afraid that it might make him proud. And so that takes us then, if we skip verse 6 just for a moment, um, well, just for a sermon, we'll go to verse 7. And this is what Paul says now. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me, given me in the flesh. So Paul's danger is, I'm going to get proud of this. And so to keep me from being proud of these, the, the surpassing greatness, the overwhelming majesty of what I saw, God gave me a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak then I am strong. So the super apostles, they're going to talk about their power, about their their understanding, about their great teaching, about all their great experiences. And Paul looks him right in the face and says, I'm going to brag in how weak I am. Because that's where Christ is seen most visibly. So here's the questions that come up. What was the thorn in the flesh? What what does that mean? Um, If we can be honest, we don't know. Um, I always thought, this was my take, was that it was a physical infirmity because it's in his flesh. It's a bodily thing. And so at the end of Galatians, Paul picks up the pen and he writes and he says, see with what large letters I'm writing. And earlier, 
In uh, chapter 4, he says, um, look, when I came to you, Galatians, it was in infirmity, it was in sickness, and had it been possible, you would have ripped your eyes out and gave them to me. So I always took it to mean Paul had like really bad glaucoma or something. That's why he wrote with large letters as he couldn't see. And so maybe the thorn in the flesh was this physical weakness that he had. Well, the problem with that is it's a little too personal. It's a messenger of Satan. It is involved not in his physical problems. It's not a physical tormentor. It's a message of sa messenger of Satan. So it seems a little more personal than just, I can't see well. And the other problem is it's somehow connected to this surpassing vision. It was like in order to keep him from becoming conceited after he received that, he received this thorn in the flesh. So, so I'm not convinced. It might be physical. It, it might not. I'm not positive. Um, another one is, uh, another theory that people put forward is it's false teachers. There are false teachers who are plaguing him. And he prayed to the Lord three times, Lord, would you remove these false teachers from my life? Because they're tormenting me. And, and the support for that view is um, earlier in chapter 11, what Paul says about them in verse 12, he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, deceiving themselves or disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves. So he has already referred to these false teachers as agents of Satan, messengers or as, as uh, ministers of Satan. So perhaps it's the false teachers that are there tormenting him. And, and that's a possibility too. I think it's got more weight than I used to give it credit for, but it's a thorn in his flesh not a thorn in his personal life, not a thorn in his ministry. It's a thorn in his flesh. So it could be, but maybe not. And so the third option that people come up with is perhaps this thorn in the flesh was Paul's personal sin, a sin that he was wrestling with. And, and that makes sense because wasn't he just saying, look, I, I am struggling not to be conceited. So this thorn in the flesh was given to me that I wouldn't be conceited to avoid the sin. But the thorn is the problem not the sin that it's preventing him from. So I'm not sure that that's what it is. So it, it could be something like that. If you have a personal bias or a personal preference one way or the other, that's fine. The point was, whatever it was, it was horrible. Because if you look back through chapter 11 and you see all that Paul had gone through in chapter 11, being persecuted, shipwrecked, all of these terrible things, not once in chapter 11 does he cry out to the Lord, take it away from me. He simply endures it. But when this thorn in the flesh shows up, then Paul cries out to God, Lord, I can't bear this one. This is more than I can handle. Please remove this from me. So whatever his thorn in the flesh is, it's not something that he can easily dismiss. It's not something that is something he can just muscle through. It is horrible to him. It is really afflicting him. And so he cries out to the Lord, and Jesus' response to him is, my grace is sufficient for you. The fact that I have fastened my unmerited favor on you is sufficient for what you're going through. Why? Because in your weakness, in your brokenness, my power is perfected. My power is shown most clearly. So Paul, I'm not going to remove this thorn because it's sent to keep you from, from being proud and 
in you not being proud, in you bragging of your weakness, I shine more thoroughly. I shine through more greatly. So Paul is suffering. He's in extreme agony with whatever this thorn in the flesh is. And God's answer to him is grace is sufficient. Where the suffering increases, the grace is sufficient for it. And that's the promise that we have when we're in affliction, when we're struggling, when we hit hard times, whether financially, emotionally, personally, relationally, whatever it is, as Christians, what God is telling us is in those times of struggle, in those times of desperation, in those times of need, my grace is sufficient. I have fastened my good favor on you and I will not remove it. So then... If that's the paradigm, if that's kind of a picture for suffering, then let's take a step back and look at how do Christians respond to suffering? How do we respond to affliction? Well, first of all, we have to remember affliction is from God. What Paul said was, a messenger from Satan has appeared and is, is a thorn in my flesh, but it was given to me. Why? So that I wouldn't be conceited. So Satan is coming and he's tormenting, in some way, he's tormenting Paul. And what is amazing is, although he is delighting in, in torturing Paul, the net effect of that torment is from God, to keep him humble, to keep him from being conceited. Satan would be probably most pleased if Paul would just go ahead and be conceited. Then it wouldn't be about Jesus, it would be about Paul. So Satan is doing what he can do because God has allowed him to. It's God's desire that Paul remain humble, that he not become conceited. So when we look at affliction like this, we have to remember that it is from God. And God's, God sends the package, or Satan, I'm sorry, Satan, I had the great line, it was, it was just this really memorable thing and I just blew it. Satan uh, or God sends the package, it's Satan who delivers it. So Satan may be the rotten UPS driver who kicks the box all the way down the road to your house or rings your doorbell at three in the morning or whatever it is. But once you open that box, that box is from God. So it may be a, a, a struggle for you to receive it. But once you received it and opened it, it's actually something that God is doing for your good, not to destroy you. So Second Peter um, uh, talks about, or I'm sorry, um, God's, God sends this package to us, and sometimes it looks like it's, it's terrible. Uh, so for example, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, um, Peter is, is preaching in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, this Jesus, delivered up to, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. It was evil, it was wicked, it was wrong for them to crucify Jesus Christ. And it was according to God's plan and his foreknowledge. So though it was not a pleasant thing, what the net effect of it was, was God used it, used that evil to break the power of evil. So wicked people act wickedly in accordance with God, with what God had intended all along. It's not that he ordained the evil and said, go out and do this bad thing. But what he says is, in the doing of this bad thing, you're going to accomplish my great purposes. I'm going to do something that's going to be so much better than what you expected to come of this. They crucified Jesus, figuring this will be the end of it. 
We'll, we'll kill this leader and the whole movement will just fall apart. And what happened? They killed the leader and the movement spread around the entire world. God's purpose was achieved through the wicked intentions of man. Uh, the most famous one of these is uh, Genesis chapter 50, um, where Joseph is talking to his jealous, wicked brothers who sold him into slavery. And after years of horrible existence, living in one pit after another, he's finally elevated to Pharaoh's right side and winds up saving the entire world because he's given the understanding of the vision so that he can put food aside. When his, he's revealed to his brothers, they're terrified. They're like, oh, he's going to get revenge. Joseph interprets that, and he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Would you look at Joseph's life and say, that's what I want to sign up for? Years in prison sounds good to me. Being falsely accused by a highly influential person, yeah, where do I sign? Helping a, a, a cupbearer and then being forgotten for a year, sounds good. But as Joseph looks back over the span of his life, he says, you intended this for evil. You thought you were going to get rid of me. But God meant it for good. God did wonderful things out of the evil that you brought about. The last example I want to bring up was Job's wife. I thought when I was preparing this sermon, I would just spend the entire time in the book of Job. It's a little hard because it's such a big book. But one of the things that happens is Job is afflicted. He's lost everything. His, his children are killed. All of his possessions are taken away. The house has fallen in. And suddenly he breaks out and boils from head to, head to foot. If a man can suffer, Job is suffering. He's lost it all. And his wife looks to him and says, curse God and die. Job, get it over with. It's obvious God hates you. Look what he's done to you. Just curse him and he'll kill you. And you can just get it over with. And wise Job, he looks at his wife in the face and says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And then the commentary on that is, in this, Job did not sin with his lips. It, as he looked at his situation, and he's not downplaying it, he's going, oh, you know, it's boils, but it's not really that bad. You know, the kids are dead, but, you know, it's not that bad. He, he is honest in his, his assessment. That's why Job can be hard to read, because Job is really in pain. And at the same time, he looks and he says, Shall I only receive the good things that God has to send me and not receive the evil as well? And evil there can mean bad. It's, that doesn't mean God does evil. What it means is God prospered me and God took that away. And, and am I only allowed to receive the good from him? Does he have no purpose in what evil he sent my way? Is there nothing good that can come from this? You speak like a foolish woman, not the wife that I know. Fortunately, we don't hear much more from her, so we don't, I don't think that this was like her normal pattern. I think she was just heartbroken at seeing her poor husband sitting there covered head to toe in boils. So there's nothing in our Christian life that promises us after you put your faith in Jesus Christ, everything's going to be great. It's just going to go smooth as silk. There's, there's nothing in the Bible that pictures that. As a matter of fact, there's a lot that pictures kind of the other way. Expect troubles. So I was reading a book um, written by D.A. Carson 
um, where he's talking about this section of scripture, and, and he's, he had some wisdom here. He says, there's a general lesson of considerable importance here. Many people go through life trying to isolate this incident or that event to the exclusive work of Satan or the exclusive work of God. This almost always leads to doubtful interpretations of events and end up in the cultic view of guidance. And what he means by the cultic view of guidance is, I'm going to check the horoscope and see what happens. And so sometimes we can be tempted to look in our life and go, well, I'm trying to make a decision and something bad happened when I moved this way and something good happened when I moved this way. So God must want me to move this way and, and, and I'm going to kind of inch towards that. That's kind of a cultic view of understanding what's going on. God is, is, is able to bring difficulty into your life for good purposes. He, he is, it's possible for him to bring trial and difficulty into your life in order to accomplish something even greater. And so what Carson is warning us about is don't try to squeeze out from underneath it and assume that you're following God's will by going the easiest path. That's not what Paul did. Paul said, Lord, take this trouble from me. And God said, no, I want to show my power through your weakness. And Paul, in the end, says, then I will exalt in my weakness. I'll, I'll take the difficulty knowing that I'm still going to work with these Corinthians who are, who are opposed to me. So as horrible as Joseph's life was, as difficult as it was for Pharaoh, uh, for, um, for Joseph before he was promoted to Pharaoh's side, as hard as it was for Job, as difficult as it was for Paul, they're all looking at the situations in their life and, going, and they're saying, I will take the adversity as well as the prosperity. I'll take the hard time as well as the good, and I'll accept both of them as from the hand of God, even when Satan is the one that delivers it to me. So, what might God be doing in your affliction? What might God be doing in your prosperity even now? How, how do you make that decision? Well, one of the things that he might be doing is driving you through adversity and prosperity back and forth. He might be driving you closer to scriptures. Psalm 119 um, verse 67 says, before I was afflicted, when things were good, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But you kept, but now I keep your word. You're good and you do good and you teach me your statutes. So before I went astray, or before I was afflicted, before you brought hardship into my life, I went astray. But you brought hardship into my life and now I've driven back to your word and I want to hear your, script, your, your, uh, your statutes. And then verse 71 of that as well says, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It is good that I was afflicted, the author says. There came a point in my life where I had started drifting and you brought affliction into my life to drive me back to your word to say, Lord, I don't understand what's going on. Why is it like this? And I heard your voice in your scriptures and it drew me back on course. It drew me back to where I, I, I should be. The other thing that God might be doing in affliction and in, in, um, and in pos uh, prosperity in your life is he may be using those things to increase your confidence in your salvation in him. So if Peter says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, In this, that is, in our salvation, you rejoice, 
Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So don't, don't miss it. We kind of head toward the, the gold and silver and, and praise and honor and all of that. But he says, you have been grieved by various trials. Not you've been inconvenienced. You couldn't find a parking spot near the door at Winco. You have been grieved. The reality is adversity is not easy. And our biblical authors don't make it sound like it's something you can just blow through. It's hard. But what Peter reminds us is, is for a little while, for a specific period of time. And the net result of it is it's, it's like gold going into a furnace. And when you heat the gold up, all the dross, all the goop floats to the top. And they skim it off and, and you wind up with a gold that's pure. That only happens inside a furnace. It doesn't happen when the gold's still in the ground, unmolested. But the end result is that our, our salvation will cause us to rejoice. And in the end, it, it has an answer. So then the, the last thing that I, I want to bring up about adversity is adversity brings us God's grace. What did Paul say? Paul said, Lord, take this thorn away from my flesh. And God's answer was, my grace is sufficient. So in that time of adversity, what's happening is God is bringing us more of his grace. It's coming to us in ways we, we can't even perceive maybe at the moment. But it welcomes more of God's grace as he puts this adversity into our lives. Carson again. Um, Dr. Carson had uh, some good words on this too. He says, it's important to recognize what this wonderful text does not promise. So this is the warning. This is not what this text is promising. Some read it as if the believer may go through a period of weakness followed by a period of divine grace and strength where the Christian becomes kind of a conqueror. The weakness becomes a condition for the strength, a payment of dues, if you will. So, yeah, I'm going to take this adversity because I know on the other side is good stuff. He says that's, that's not what this is promising. The weakness becomes a condition of strength, a payment of dues, if you like, but such an interpretation twists the text. Paul's thorn is not followed by grace. Rather, grace is given to him to enable him to cope with the weakness that is not removed. The thorn is there to weaken him, to afflict him, to trouble him, and the grace is given not after it's done, not after he's paid his dues, but through the, the meantime. Paul's thorn is not followed by grace. Rather, grace is given to him to enable him to cope with the weakness that is not removed. Very often in scriptures, it's not a condition of grace in the sense that it serves as an um, Very often in scripture, weakness is not a condition of grace in the sense that it serves as a necessary precursor of grace, but in some sense, it serves as a continuing vehicle of grace. In our weakness, that's where we receive this grace. The weakness itself is the continuing vehicle of grace. And do you remember what we said grace was? It's God's unmerited favor. And do you remember how we get that? 
with the first biblical promise that we brought up about how you receive grace. God gives grace to the humble. So if you want more of God's grace, you seek humility. Humility is weakness. It's saying, Lord, I see myself. I understand who I am before you. I understand who you are. And so I am weak. I am not the one ultimately in control, Lord. You ultimately are in control. And so that's why it's important for Paul to be weak. Because in his weakness, then God says, you're humbled before me. Now you see who's in control. Will you trust me through the difficulty as well as the, the good times? Will you hear what Job told his wife? That's where adversity can bring and encourage humility. Um, and that's kind of important for us because we have to be humble to receive God's grace. God gives grace to the humble. That's a biblical promise. And you can't be humble by just, I'm just not going to ever talk about myself. Because what happens is now the humility is moved from outside to inside. And I'm so proud because I'm not talking about myself. That's not going to draw God's grace. But true humility will. Real humility will do that. So that's why Paul must focus on his weakness. That's why adversity and weakness is not the down payment for the grace that will come. It is the vehicle. It's bringing the grace at the time. William Cowper was a... Uh, a Puritan poet wrote a, a, a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And in it he says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may, bit, may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So as God is working in your life, as, as adversity comes, that's the bud, and it may be bitter. It may be hard to swallow. But the promise is your God is going to bring that bud to flower, and the, the flower will be sweet. And so right in the middle of it, he says, but trust him for his grace. That's how we're supposed to approach these things. That's the Christian clue here, is it's not always sweet and wonderful and great to be a Christian. It can honestly be difficult at times. It can be embarrassing. It can be humiliating. It can cost you dearly. The bud may be bitter. But how long is this life? 80, 90 years, 100 years? What does that compare to eternity? This trouble that we go through, this, this struggle that we go through in this life, this world plagued by sin, ruled by Satan, and we're, we're going to go through this and we expect everything is going to be just ducky? But what's the other side of this? God says, there's a time coming when my son is going to return. There's a time coming when sin and death and hell will be put away. This heavens and this earth will be made brand new. And that one won't last for however long this earth has been around. That one is going to last for eternity. So that's the point is the bud. How long does a bud last? Just briefly and then it bursts open into what it's going to be. The flower lasts a season. That's the promise. So... 
how do we deal with all of this stuff? What, what is it going on? Because it's easy to stand here and talk about it. It's hard to walk through it. Well, one of the ways that people have responded was in ancient Greece, the Stoics. Um, they had this high view of nature. And they said, don't mess with nature. So whatever comes your way, you just take it. You go along with what nature has sent you. So if the times are great, you just rejoice and be glad that they're good. And when the hard times come, you just muscle up and go through it. You accept what's come to you. You don't let those things shape you. So that's, that's this kind of unrealistic view of the world where pain isn't real. Pain is just part of what's going on and I just have to walk with it. The other side of it can be American television. If you haven't watched television, it is an amazing thing. They have these commercials for drugs that will fix problems I didn't know were problems. I was sitting in the doctor's office and they had a TV and all it was was drug commercials, one after another. I was like, I had no idea that was an affliction. And now I can take a pill and make it go away. So the American, the modern American way to understand and to deal with adversity and trouble and difficulty is take a pill and make it go bye-bye. Is squirm out from underneath it. Build up enough money, find a big enough job where I can keep difficulty at, at arm's length because I got enough cash. Or find a pill to make the, the pain, the emptiness, the loneliness, the sorrow that I feel on a day-to-day -day basis, take a pill to make that go away. That's why we have a, an opioid, opioid crisis in America, is people are trying to dead, dead in that empty space in their lives. So Americans' response to adversity is avoided at all cost. So how are we supposed to, as Christians, walk in this? Do we do the stoic thing and just muscle up and be tough and I'm going to face it? Do we do the American thing, pop a pill, hide under the couch, make a lot of money, drink a whole bunch, bad feelings go away? The, the Christian does neither. The, the Christian approach to this is to say, I'm really hurting. Honestly, I am hurting. I'm not going to fake it. I'm lonely. I'm frustrated. I'm bored. I have doubts in my life. I have people that I would rather not be around that I face on a day-to-day -day basis. I have people that I wish were in my life and they're nowhere to be found. And to say honestly, Lord, help. Read the Psalms. In the Psalms, over and over and over again, the psalmist is crying out to the Lord, Why, Lord? Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? Why? God inspired those. So it's not going to surprise God when you cry out to him and say, Lord, I am hurting. He knows and he wants to hear it. So the Christian's first response is to say, honestly, I'm hurting. I'm not stoic, and I'm not a materialist. I'm hurting, honestly. So Tim Keller wrote a book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and in it he says, Christianity was, agree uh, was able to agree with the pagan stoic writers that inordinate attachment to earthly goods can lead to unnecessary pain and grief. It also taught that the answer to this was not to love things less, but to love God more than anything else. Over-attachment to earthly things, things that are going to be dust in 10,000 years, leads to pain. Because I know this is going away. I, I know this is going to vaporize in some time. And so you don't 
turn into a stoic and go, well, that's just the way it is. You, you face the pain, but the idea is, instead of loving those things less and saying, I don't enjoy people, I'm just going to sit home alone because I don't enjoy people because I'm afraid of being hurt. Don't love them less. Love God more so that you can say, Lord, I love these people and they're, they're moving away and they're going to be gone from my life. And it's going to leave a hole, Lord, but I love you and I know that, that, that you'll be sufficient for that hole that's in my life. I know that that's going to be good. So there's wisdom in this idea of adversity being a means of grace. Because what's the, the end result of, of God's grace in our life is to train our hearts to love what God loves. To love him more than the things that he's given us. That's the pattern that we follow. That's how we, we walk through those things. And it's important to not forget what's at the center of this. Who's in the middle of all of this? Keller also goes on to say, if you find yourself in a furnace, he says, if you, if you say to yourself, when you get thrown into a furnace, this is my furnace. I am not being punished for my sins because Jesus was thrown into that ultimate fire that I may, uh, that, and that in my place. I know it means that if I trust him, this furnace will only make me better. He doesn't deny that you're in the furnace. What he says is, this isn't because God hates me and wants to destroy me. Jesus stepped into the furnace that I was due so that when the furnace comes to me, I know it's only purifying. It's only leading me to more of him. So don't forget Jesus Christ in the middle, in the center of your suffering. Jesus suffered. Isaiah 53 is all about the man of sorrows. So he doesn't look from a sideline and go, boy, I bet that hurt. He's been there. He suffered in our place. So that's about suffering. That's about difficulty. What about prosperity? How do we deal with the good times? Because most of us, I think, on a scale, we'd be more on the prosperous side. Difficult times come, but overall, I think, for most of us, life is pretty good. That's equally dangerous because we wind up tuning into those things. We know, like I said at the beginning, nobody says, hey, I'm up for pain. Where do I sign up? We all gravitate towards where things are good. I, I have a nice, comfortable house. I have a good job. I have a, a comfortable life. That's where I want to stay. And that can be dangerous because you can become satisfied with those things to the point where when they're taken away, you're devastated. You're blown away. You have nothing else to stand on. So that can be just as dangerous as adversity. It can push just as hard. So in Proverbs, there's wisdom, of course. That's what Proverbs is. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither riches nor poverty. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Do you see what the, the author is saying? There, there's a balance. There's a place. If I'm too full, I, I don't need God. I'm good. Satisfied. Got it. Or if I'm too poor, God's not providing for me. What a lousy God he is. There's the two dangers. And so what the, the, the author of Proverbs is saying is put my heart right in between those two so that when I'm prosperous, 
I won't deny, I won't deny that you exist. When I'm poor, I won't profane your name. But keep my heart right in the balance. And, and he's not talking about the medium, average medium income for the country you're in. He's talking about in all aspects of life, Lord, keep me in the middle. And, and trust and believe, Lord, I know exactly why, why you've got me here. This is where I'm at at this season in my life, and it's okay. Because you are good, and you're going to be good to me. And that's walking in grace when the thorn is in your flesh. That's walking in grace when the thorn isn't in your flesh. God uses those times of prosperity and of adversity to draw our hearts in. Not so that we'll be stoic, emotionless robots, but so that we will trust in him no matter what he brings to us. So I just have one last quote that I want to read. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book on pain called The Problem of Pain. And so he says... The first answer then to the question, why our cure should be painful. He's talking about our cure. When, when pain comes into our life, when humility comes into our life, why is it painful? Why do we not like that? Well, the first answer to the question, why our cure should be so painful, is that to render back the will which, God so, which we have so long claimed for our own, in itself, whether here, uh, whatever and however it is done, is a grievous pain. To yield back the will that God has given us and say, Lord, you're in charge. That, he says, is the grievous pain. And that's why we need patterns in our life of God's grace, patterns that lead us to trust him more, to love what we, he loves more, so that that pain of saying, Lord, not my will done, be done, but yours, becomes less painful. There's more trust involved in it. There's more, I have seen this pattern over and over and over again. Lord, I've seen what you're doing in this life. I know what that means. And yes, the pain is there, but I'm willing to let go. And so that's why God would bring into our lives adversity and prosperity. It's why people don't understand, wait, you're a Christian and you're suffering? How, how, I thought you were you know, God's buddy and he was going to just do everything great for you. It's a gross misunderstanding of what the Christian life is. It's not what God promised. What he promised was not, this life is going to be better. What he promised is something even greater. There is an eternity of bliss, increasing every moment, waiting for you. And precious is in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Let's pray. Lord, lead us to trust you in adversity. But Lord, as, as Western American middle-class citizens, Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you in prosperity as well. Lord, guard our hearts, and I pray that you would use the pattern of, of trouble and, and um, rest in our lives to draw us closer to you so that when the trouble comes, we're not blown away. When the rest comes, we don't fall asleep. And Lord, we thank you that you are in the middle of this, standing in the furnace in our place, saying the flames will not harm you. I have taken the burden of those flames. Lord Jesus, work in our lives that way we pray. In Christ's name, amen.